Welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman, and this week we're going to look at a title race where there was really only one winner this weekend and a Berlin Derby where, yeah, yeah, you could probably say about the same about that as well. Uh, with me are two of my favorite people to pod with. First off, Nick Wildhagen. Hello again. Hello there, Matt. It's, it's starting to become a habit. You got it. And Kit Holden. Good Good, good to have you on the line, Kit. Hello, Matthew. I wish I could say it's good to see you, but it isn't. <laughs> wow, what, what are you even talking about? You don't even have your camera turned on. I don't know if you can see me on your computer. You know, I've got my gear on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I use my I use my replica shirts for uh, for workout clothes. So you know, I, I, you're, you're catching me with my headband on and my you know workout outfit on. Not showered yet. Sorry. That Mauerfeld special edition hat shirt that you're wearing must have set you back a good eighty euros. There. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> no, it didn't. It was a, it was a special price for that one. Coming up on this show, uh, there will be there will be a good natured banter between Kit and I, but also you know studied takes about the state of the Bundesliga. Uh, we've got uh, several big matches from the weekend that we will be putting under the microscope. We'll talk about what I think and also what uh, it seems from our pre-show talk, what these two gents think is an intriguing title race this season. We'll also get a bit of insight into one of the contending teams from the author of a new book on the Red Bull football empire. Let's go on to part one of Talking Foosball. This is the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day 10. I think that there are probably quite a few things that we have learned in the first 10 matches. Uh, I think that's a fair point to start talking with a little bit more seriousness about teams' uh, form and, and where they might be headed. We have a lot to talk about with regard to the title race. We'll get to that in a moment, but as is fit and proper, as is tradition, when it's a Berlin Derby, that means we got to start with uh, the, the, the fault line between me and Kit Holden. Uh, let's start with Friday night's match. It was um, an eventful one, I would have to say. It was a hair to win, 3-1. Kit, how are you coming out of this match from sort of both your expectations before the game as, as well as your expectations when Union took the lead uh, there sort of early in, in, in this game and, and then things didn't quite go your way? Yeah, I mean, as far as the, the kind of the way the game went, I think there wasn't really even enough time to enjoy the goal before it was quite clear that, you know, things were going to go in the other direction because Robert Andrich decided to kick Lucas Toussaint in the head and Modern football being modern football, that's not acceptable anymore for some reason. Uh, just a load of pansies now in football. Uh, can't even kick people in the head anymore. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was quite clear from that moment on that, that I knew we were going to struggle to to even defend their lead, let alone get anything, you know, let alone win the game. So uh, yeah, the, that, that pretty philosophical about the way the game went itself. As far as what it means in the in the grander scheme of things, I think before the game there was a general feeling that this was kind of more important for for Hertha than Union in terms of their season and and the pressure they were under. Um, and the Union having got quite a lot of good results and made such a good start to the season didn't really need to to you know use the derby as a big springboard for anything. Wholeheartedly agree on that. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. And so you know we were gracious enough to to let you win in order to you know save you from relegation. But um, no, but I mean I, I actually think 
in hindsight, although, you know, that was very much also the tone that, that was Fisher and everybody else at Union struck afterwards as well, that, you know, this wasn't a disaster and the performance was pretty much okay, to be honest. You know, there was no uh, real kind of alarm bells ringing there, um, no major ones in any, in any case. Um, even so, I, I do feel it's it's a bit of a shame to have had such a result before such a tough period for Unions. You know, we've got a lot of midweek games coming up. We've got Dortmund, Bayern, Leipzig um, over the Christmas period and into January. These are This is going to be a tough six weeks. Um, and I think it's it's not the best way to start it. I think they would have preferred to start it with a kind of at least a, a draw um, and a kind of safely navigated derby. And if you add to that, obviously, the the, the big setback for Union is, is the fact that Max Cruiser injured himself at the at the end of the game is going to be out for a couple of months. That's the yeah, there's a there's a bitter aftertaste. Yeah, I I feel like in a lot of ways uh, some of the things that happened in this game uh, aside from the goals with with you know an exception which I'll get to uh, were were bigger than than the goals. I mean, we had a lot of scrappy goals in this game to be fair. I mean, Awani's goal was a bit of a scuffed finish. Uh Peter Pickerick's a goal to even it up was uh, off of a rebound. Piontek's first one was deflected quite significantly. And it really had to get to like the last goal of the game to actually see a pretty one. One that was, you know, just a really nice one-time finish uh, from Piontek. Interestingly, I think, Nick, you had some thoughts uh, last week on this show about what you thought we might be ready to to get from Shishtof Piontek. All I see in in some of your your uh, talking points here is a is a told you so. Uh, what did you tell me exactly? <laughs> well, I remember we talked about John Cordoba's injury a couple of weeks ago. Last week was it last week? Um, at least one of those times. And you were sort of concerned of what that meant for Herta going forward because uh, Piontek hadn't necessarily shown himself to be the sort of striker that could add something to the side. Whenever he got off the bench, I mean, we talked about his. Um, disastrous spell on the pitch against Bayern where it caused a free kick that led to a goal and, uh, you know, some, some pretty er- erratic defending when he needed to defend. But, you know, back then and uh, after that Cordoba injury, I said, I-, I think there's a reason why Herta dished out all that money for him because he has shown himself to be a capable player, capable striker. He just needs to get that, you know, first goal and when that first goal comes, more will follow. You know, and he showed himself to be... Um, in the right place at the right time in this match. And uh, he killed off that game with that beautiful first-time finish, as you said. And, uh, yeah, uh, going forward, if he can replicate this sort of form, he um, he is going to be a, a vital player for them. And, uh, you know, you talked about Union's uh, matches coming up, uh, kid. I mean, Hurt on the other hand side, they have had some tough matches already. I mean, they've played Dortmund, they've played Bayern. Now, uh, the next before Christmas, they have uh, out of form Borussia Mönchengladbach, they have Mainz, they have Freiburg. Things are looking ever so slightly more brightly going forward for Hertha, I would say. Oh, I would say the same. I mean, I, I think that uh, the loss of Mateusz Cunha um, for one match, that's going to be the, the Gladbach match. He picked up his fifth yellow card uh, late on in this derby. Uh, it's it's going to hurt, and that's going to sort of damage their chances in that game. But... If you can figure out a way to get Piontek involved, and if you can get the kind of performance you got out of Javaro de Rosen that you got in the second half of this game against Union, and, and really the introduction of those two players changed the sort of complexion 
of this match. I don't think they have such a bad uh, chance against uh, Gladbach, especially when I looked at the uh, some of the, the 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 XG stats from this weekend and saw that Gladbach had given up four uh, expected goals to uh, Freiburg uh, this weekend. Uh, that kind of tells me that. You know, they're not the toughest nut to crack at the moment. But let me turn things back around to, to Union, actually. I, Kit, I, I, you already mentioned Max Kuz's uh, injury, and it sounds like it is not entirely clear what the nature of that injury is. But it does seem clear that he will miss at least a few games, probably won't come back until after the, the, the winter mini break. Does that put the irons back kind of where they were last season I, in terms of, of style of play or, or ambition. What does he mean in terms of, uh, you know, how this team is, is set up to operate uh, going forward if, if, if you take him out of the equation? Well, I think, first of all, ambition-wise, Onyon would argue that that has never changed. And that they've, <laughs> yeah, always, yeah. they've always, you know, from the, from the get-go in the season up till now, they've always just been focused on, on surviving. Um, I think also partly because they knew that the second half of the Hinrunda was going to be a lot more difficult than the first half, just based on the fixture list. Um, and so as good as it is to get those points in the bag early on, there was always going to be a, a tougher period. That was the same last year as well, um, that they kind of had ups and downs. In terms of how important Cruiser is, in some ways you could argue that this isn't necessarily the best, the worst time to to lose him because as you say, they're probably going to revert to a kind of the style of play that we saw more from them last season, which is more pragmatic, more about rigorously organized defending and, and keeping shape and then and then hitting teams on the break, which he can definitely play in that kind of a scenario, but that's not necessarily the 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 extra uh, strength that he's brought this team in in the first ten games of this season. He's definitely allowed them to to be more expansive and and yeah, just brought more flair to the team, uh, which is something they were they were wanting to do in this season anyway. But I do think I, to to a certain extent, it's it's psychological as much as tactical what he's brought, and um, in that respect, I think he's had an impact. There are other players such as Marcus Zimbachsen, who or Sherelda Becker in a, in a slightly different way, who can do similar things to to that which Cruiser does. So it's not that Onyon are going to be entirely blunted. And as I say, they're probably going to be playing slightly more defensively in the next few weeks anyway. So there is an argument to say this isn't this isn't the worst time for it to happen if it was going to happen. But psychologically, it's a big blow. And particularly as, as it, you know... As much as it's Max Cruiser, it's also another striker. You know, Joel Payampolo is out for the long run. Anthony Ujar is out for the long run. There's, there's a lot of injuries at the moment, and and Fisher is running out of, of people he can play in those central roles. And so that's, particularly as the fixtures stack up over the winter, that's a problem because legs are going to get tighter and, and, you know, that will have an effect. For sure. For sure. All right. Let's 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 wrap this uh, discussion of the Berlin Derby up with um, a, a sort of a bigger picture question uh, that isn't just talking about uh, the, the, the game itself or the next few games, but really the the rest of the season. And this is obviously kind of a, a crystal ball question, but, you know, like I said at the top of the show, after 10 games, uh, we probably have learned a few things about what different teams are capable of. This one comes from Brian uh, down in Texas. He's basically asking, after watching this derby, uh, which of these two teams do you think is set to have the better season? And, you know, we'll, we'll get our chance uh, to, to talk on this, Kit. 
But let's talk to, to Mr. Neutral first, Nick. <laughs> well, in terms of marketing, and, and I'm, I'm surprised we haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, did, did you see that flag campaign that uh, Hertha Berlin had before the Berlin derby? I sure <laughs> did. A kid, did, I, you probably just totally blocked it out, right? Oh, it was impossible. You, know, they were, you should have been here in Berlin. They were putting flags on every window and shoving them into your hand as you walk past. I did actually see... Uh, a homeless guy in in the western half of Kreuzberg who who picked up a few of them and sort of arranged them around his sleeping bag outside the <laughs> Rossmann, which I, I quite enjoyed. Spectacular. I mean, there was even there was even there were even union fans on Berlin who uh, in on on Instagram who had sort of like draped their entire floor with Hertha flags, uh, which I um, thought was absolutely a, a great great use for those flags. And there were several pictures of them being put into bins and stuff. So in terms of marketing, I think uh, Union Berlin is always going to have a better season because um, ever since Hertha got, got into the hat that they were a big city club, um, the marketing and the um, sort of communication with the outside world has been ever so slightly old. Hey, which, which, team, pl- which team had... A company of landlords on their shirt, and which team had, you know, a, a charity campaign to support struggling, uh, you know, bar owners? I didn't. I didn't Come realize on. this was the Stefan Hermann's appreciation. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I think I think that's a fair point. I mean, like my colleague Stefan Hermann's wrote a piece before the derby. Had to, as, as Matt mentioned, uh, yeah, had a had a sort of. Fan initiative supporting struggling bars, struggling Hertha bars um, on their shirts this this week. And my colleague wrote a piece that said this is a, a sign that Hertha, now that they've been challenged by Union Berlin as, as a as a serious kind of challenge to their hegemony in the in the in the city for the first time ever, really, um, are having to really think again about about who they are and who they're trying to appeal to, um, and are finding themselves a bit more than they they perhaps done have done in the last five years. And I think there's there's definitely something to that. I think there's also a slight kind of um, contrariness to that argument, um, which comes from a certain type of person who who has now decided that Onion, because some people find them cool, are definitely, you know, not cool. Um, but that's that's just how these things go. How how did you read my mind like that? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think there's certainly I think actually, yeah, in some ways I think there's definitely something to be said for the fact that Onion's strength of of brand identity would will probably in the long run and middle term serve to help out to go in the same direction rather than rather than weaken them um which is a good thing for the city really. for sure for sure yeah and and just to add my two cents to the to to the entire discussion if, if you want to see real proper cool football in in berlin and there and there about uh, you go out to babelsberg be proud now but in terms of, of the football being played i think hurt is probably going to have the best of best of the rest of the season because as you said kid um Union have a very tough few weeks coming up. They have, uh, uh, I think they have Bayern in their next match, don't they? And uh, then it's an away trip to Stuttgart and it's a home match against Dortmund. So, I mean, having seen Stuttgart, having seen Bayern of late, I you know, I think those are probably going to be two really, really tough matches. And uh, for them, it's a good thing that they have 16 points already and uh Hertha on the other hand side they've played most of the big boys in the league and they have a fairly you know easy few weeks coming up so um if everything goes according to plan I could even see Hertha being ahead of Union at the mini winter break to be honest 
Based on what we've seen so far, I would not be surprised if the season ends in exactly the same way as it did last season, which was the teams on equal points with Hatter ahead on goal difference. That would not surprise me in any way, shape or form. No, no, it wouldn't surprise me either. I think this will be a pretty pretty close run thing. But in the end, I, I do think that uh, Hertha will come out on top. And I, that's, you know, that's the way I like it. I like Union, and I like them even better when they're below us. <laughs> Secretly would prefer to be, you know, I don't think we really want to become the biggest club just yet. Yeah, you've talked about, you've talked about your strong brand identity, and that's, that's part of it. You know, it would ruin the whole narrative if you guys made it to Europe or something like that. Right. All right. Uh, let, let's let's move on uh, from from the Berlin Derby and talk about the uh, the early burly at the top of the table. A lot was going on on the weekend. And to be frank, there was not a lot of winning going on at the top of the table, aside from one club, which we'll get to later in the show. First, let's talk about the, the first of a couple of uh, you know, draws that we want to address here. Uh, it would be Frankfurt versus Dortmund. This was a 1-1 draw in the end. And, um, you know, it was a pretty nervy game, I would have to say. I'll, I guess I'll start with you, Nick. What impression were you left with after this game? <sighs> oh, boy. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, I suppose that I'm um, sort of disappointed in Dortmund. I thought they had better depth, uh, that they could replace Holland better than that. It's encouraging to see that Favre doesn't shy away from giving Mukuku an entire half. Some some folks thought he was going to give give him an entire game. Yeah, but you know, I mean, you want to break him gently, but you know, it's sort of a balancing act. And but you know, to give him an entire half at that young an age is is still a it's, you know it's it's a it's a big step. Uh, I mean, you could have, you know, tearing the Bundesliga, the under-19 Bundesliga apart and playing in the Bundesliga with the big boys is an uh, entirely different story, really. So, I mean, what my, my takeaway from that game is that Dortmund really struggled to create chances, that Frankfurt were well-organized, uh, that Deji Kamada is really one of the most underrated players in the Bundesliga. I think that run and that finish ever so coolly for that first goal was truly tremendous. And uh, I mean, I know we have a fair few American listeners, um, and they'll be pleased to hear or to see that Gio Reyna is still in the habit of scoring really beautiful goals. But as for Dortmund, they're they're really not moving in an upward direction after that two-one uh, defeat against Köln the other week. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You mentioned the uh, American, um, you know, listeners to this podcast as well as people who might have been. Uh wanting to watch Dortmund versus Frankfurt. There was, unfortunately, a, uh, a major uh, blackout of ESPN+. Plus. Uh, so for, for about the first, I don't know, uh, 70, 75 minutes of all of the Saturday, um, you know, conference slot games, the games that were Saturday morning here, Saturday afternoon in Germany, uh, the only game that was available to watch was Bielefeld versus Mainz, which, you know, I, I watched fairly happily. I have to admit, it was it was it was not a bad game. We'll talk about it later. You <laughs> no, I, I was I was actually really pissed, but then I started watching the game and it was pretty good. So, <laughs> leaving that aside, Kit, I, I'm not sure if this was the the game that you chose to watch uh, at this time of day, but what are we to take from this? I mean, obviously Dortmund have a habit of dropping points, especially when they're sort of in the midst of of you know European struggles. Um, Eintracht, as we got a question from Brian in Kansas City, asking about you know when are they going to f- stop friggin' drawing all their matches? This is you know 
basically going to keep them potentially from from making it into Europe and being left out. I mean, I feel like there was plenty to be frustrated about if you were a fan of either of these teams. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the last sort of uh, 20 minutes of the game from from what I caught of it kind of summed that up, that you really got the feeling both these teams were, you know, felt they should be winning and, and, and needed to win. Um, Frankfurt, I mean, you mentioned Kamada, Nick. I, I completely wholeheartedly agree with that. A brilliant assist against Union a couple of weeks ago as well. I think he's very much a, an overlooked player this season. Yeah, the, I think it's a matter of time before they start winning games because if you look at the way they've been playing and, and, and also just the way they've been reacting, I mean, okay, they are still a stronger team than Union, but I, I go back to that 3-3 draw and, you know, you go 2-0 down after five minutes to turn that game on its head, even though they didn't win it in the end. It shows a certain steadiness, which I think puts them in good stead. Um, for Dortmund, I, I kind of feel for Favre. I mean, I think this result is far less... Mm, remarkable than than the defeat to Cohn. Um Obviously, it would have been good to bounce back, but I think you know let's let's see how it goes in the next few weeks because you know if they win two or three on the bounce, then then they're still pretty pretty well set. Um, and it's thus far been I think a, a quite a promising start to the season. There haven't really been any major causes for for, for alarm yet, apart from that one defeat. Um, I think he's rotated the squad very well. Um, and it helps that yeah you can bring in players like Mukoko um, from from your youth setup and, and that they look so comfortable so quickly so I think there's a lot of good signs as well and I think you know let's let's give him a bit of patience which he doesn't always get and as for Frankfurt as I say a matter of time I think Dortmund coaches and patience uh, and the media and um, fans on Twitter in general is uh, really uh, one of those things that drives me up the fucking wall at times. Because whenever Dortmund are in sort of a position where they're close to buying in the table and then they draw or lose a match, uh, you know, surprisingly, you know, you have that whole frenzy of this or that coach not being good enough, not being able to win the championship. And what on earth are Dortmund thinking hiring Favre, that Swiss idiot who cannot decide what tactics to play, who ponders and thinks too much and all that kind of crap. And, you know, for me, um, I, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, it 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 gets me mad because I, I don't think that any other coach right now could possibly get Dortmund to play better football or better by country miles as some people suggest that, you know, Jesse March or any of these other coaches who are, you know, not like the latest toast of the town in some obscure league like Austria. <laughs> so Wow, coming out blazing. <laughs> you do Jesse March something of a disservice there to be fair but but yeah I, I'd take your point and I, and I would I would add to that that you know when Stürger was in charge people were saying the same thing about Favre that if only Dortmund got Favre then everything would be fine and and that they could change the title so yeah I agree it's always the same and indeed a bit more patience would would be good this topic has been addressed uh, on other episodes although not in, with your presence uh kid we, we've talked about successors for uh, Lucy and Favre uh, before and and of course Jesse Marsh's name comes up of course Marco Rose's name comes up sometimes others as well um you know we don't want to be sort of overreacting to each week's uh, results it's it's it, 
you know, it's not realistic to say that uh, Dortmund are going to try and part ways with with uh, Lucien Favre anytime soon. But it does seem increasingly clear that they are not particularly interested in signing him up to another contract. His current one runs out in the summer. They are probably conducting a whole lot of conversations, both internally and quietly, externally. Does it make sense for them to try and really push for Marco Rosa as many, many um you know, think that they will. And it doesn't make sense for Marco Rose's career to make that move. To me, that question? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that. yeah I mean, I, I think he, he, yeah, it's a perfect fit in some ways. I think he has shown both the Zadzboy and Gladbach that, that um, he's very capable of, of doing well at that level. Um, for him, it would be a club with, with more resources and, and more possibility, more possibilities than, than Gladbach have. Um, if only marginally, but but it's a significant small margin, if that makes sense. And I think in in some ways, I, I feel that what Rules has done at Gladbach is is brought a certain fearlessness, a certain perhaps ambition that wasn't always there under under previous coaches in the last few years. Um, and it's we were discussing it in the pre-show as well. I think a, a lack of serious ambition from from Dortmund and Leipzig um, particularly is is part of the the problem in the Bundesliga at the moment. And I think Rosa is the sort of guy who who would look to challenge Bayern and would look to say, okay, if I've got a squad that has, and he probably wouldn't have Sancho, but let's say, you know, I've got a squad that has Sancho and Haaland and Coco and Reyna and, you know, all these fantastic players, then yeah, I can go for the title. Why not? Um, and that's good. You know, that's, that, that would be a good thing for the club. It's what the club needs at the moment. Um, because I mean, one one of the reasons I feel for Favre is that he's been brought in to do a job, which is keep Bayern, keep Dortmund in the Champions League and and keep them in second place. He's done that job absolutely brilliantly, and everyone slams him for not attacking Bayern. Well, I'm not sure it's him that that is really um, the problem or the the cause of the, the the fact that they're not attacking Bayern. I think that's that that's an issue that goes higher up, um, and I think he's he's doing his job. But yeah, I would like to see a bit more ambition for them, and I, I think Rosa is a yeah, as, as good a guy as any to, to bring that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can throw in another name, Schettel Knutsen here in Norway. Just won the title with Budeglimt. Very small team playing in black and yellow as well. Very little resources. Uh, he plays a pressing 4-3-3. Uh, absolutely tremendous football. Why not him? Why not a Norwegian? He would he would be a good fit for Holland. I like it. I like it. You know, or maybe maybe he can go coach uh, a team in, in an obscure league like like Austria. Well, yeah, he's, he's got experience there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn around real quick and and sort of follow up on on Brian's question about uh, Eintracht. Is there something that we can pinpoint um, about this side that is keeping them from um, you know? I guess getting the upper hand a little bit more consistently in games. You know, as you mentioned that that game against Union last week when they went 2-0 down very early, fought back, got the lead, gave it up to a, you know, a wonder goal. Um and and this time out, you know, they they did get an upper hand, but it never looked all that certain that they were going to get this this result home. Nick do you have any any insights about what's missing for them right now? Or, you know, kid, if, if you have an idea, we'll, we'll sort of sort this out. I mean, uh, well, let's just be rather simplistic about that and rather quick. Right now, uh, they're wasting too many chances, as the XG over, over those 10 matches shows. They've, you know, their chance creation has been excellent. They've just not been that good, good in front of goal. They should have by now had four more goals according to the expected goals. They've conceded two more goals than they should have. 
So that in itself, that gap of six goals can explain why they've, you know, drawn seven matches and only won two. And, uh, you know, their XG points would suggest that they should around should be around seventh, which they aren't at the moment. And they should be a lot closer to, um, you know, sides like Leverkusen, Bayern, Gladbach, Union Berlin, and the rest of them. But, um, yeah, the b- biggest problem, um, letting in too many easy goals, you know, conceding too many goals, uh, and, uh, and scoring too few. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <All> right. <laughs> I should be paid for this sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested to see kind of who's been missing those expected goals if, if that isn't too stupid a thought. Because just looking at it, I mean, Silver has been scoring for fun this season. Dost has got three goals in 10 games, which is not amazing, but it's not absolutely barren uh, as, as the scoring record goes at the start of the season. So it kind of seems to me there's not an obvious fix for that. But, you know, one striker is out of form or, or not being played right or not getting chances or whatever. Sure. No, I, I think what's going to fix this team is just time, patience, you know, <laughs> reversion to the mean. I, I don't think that there's anything fundamentally wrong with this team. I think it's, you know, thing, things will turn around in time. Okay, main event time. Main event time. Top spiel. Bayern, Leipzig. 3-3 draw. This was um, a whale of a game, I thought. It had all kinds of back and forth action. Uh, There was definitely moments in which it it appeared that the momentum was going to turn uh, for for good, even. And, And then the story took another turn or two. Kit, why don't you start off since, you know, I guess... You have some affinity uh, for, for Bayern and their project, and you have uh, done quite a bit of reporting on uh, Leipzig over the years. What were your expectations uh, going into this game? Did it live up to them? Were you, um, you know, pleased with the entertainment? Yeah, I didn't necessarily expect it to be so entertaining, but yeah, I, I think it, in some ways it's not too surprising when you when you consider how kind of under strain Bayern are at the moment. Um, it's not necessarily they're, they're playing badly, they're playing very well, but they're, they're obviously tired. A um, couple of injuries and, and just such a, a crazy schedule between uh, this point and, and last summer, um, which makes them potentially vulnerable to, to a team as good as Leipzig. And I think Nagelsmann had a, had a clear plan um, that was very well executed. Leipzig stayed mentally very strong throughout the game I thought because um, you know as a, Bayern have a tendency to, to once they get hold of a game like that and, and really start shaking it by the neck to kill it off quite quickly and, and Leipzig didn't allow them to do that they, they stayed positive they they carried on pushing forward and they're rewarded for that um, so a, a deserved result and I think again a sign as I mentioned earlier I, I do think a sort of perhaps a, a slight lack of ambition has been a problem in the last few years and and I, I think, again, a sign that, that if you really go at uh, a team like Bayern, as good as they are, you can you can get something, um, particularly at a time like this where there, there's a, an extra amount of tiredness there, where there's not necessarily 60,000 fans in that stadium or, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a time to really attack them. And I think Leipzig did that and, and were rewarded, which is good, even even as a, as a Bayern sympathizer, a, a lifelong Bayern fan. That's a good thing to see. Yeah, we actually had a listener question from uh, Marshall 
in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, who asks about RB's tactical plan going into this game. It, it's mentioned that their direct attack of, of Bayern's high line was, was quite a fruitful uh, tactic and asks why don't we see more teams trying that countering tactic against the champs. Nick, do you want to you take that? <laughs> well, it depends on the sort of players you have and how quickly you can sort of... Uh, get back once Bayern have broken through your high pressing line because if you press high and you cannot really switch into defense deeper down the pitch at a quick pace Bayern will have you you know get you on the counter attack four five six seven eight times um so I mean that is probably probably the answer there I've you know I mean Hoffenheim had another tactic. I mean, they they sort of went for long balls um, to find out that Alfonso Davies is not really strong in the air. And, you know, once Alfonso Davies lost that hatter, uh, they actually had a couple of really quick guys around there to, to pick up the scraps and, and distribute the ball quickly in attack and made that one work. So, uh, I mean, the simple answer would be you have to sort of find a tactic against Bayern that uh, your team can execute and, and can execute well. Leipzig have the sort of players that can press high and that can switch back into defense rather quickly if they should, uh, you know, not be able and press them high up the pitch successfully. Other teams don't. I mean, when you, for instance, think of Schalke or Bremen or any of those sides sort of trying to do that over an extended period of time, they probably would fare a lot worse than Leipzig did. Oh, yeah, yeah. And truthfully, you you already mentioned Hoffenheim, who, who had a not the same, but a somewhat similar tactic uh, work for them. And there have been other teams who have tried to do it. It just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't always work. I mean, it's a very fine line, really. I mean, I would say Stuttgart tried it, didn't quite work. I think at times both, uh, both Dortmund and Hertha tried it, didn't quite work. Um, but, you know, if you're going to go after Bayern, you're going to go after, you know, the space that they uh, leave because basically, when when they're in possession, if you can start your own attack uh, after you know getting the ball off of them uh, quite quickly, there's going to be uh, acres and acres of space somewhere on the pitch in the, the in the Bayern half. It's just a matter of of getting the ball there effectively and having players quick enough to beat Bayern's guys, which is not always easy. Um, yeah, I think I think that there's a lot of teams who who have recognized that this is the way to to, to get at Bayern. It's just really really hard. It is, and again, you need you need the right kind of players to do that. You know, I mean, you know, for instance, Augsburg or Freiburg, I wouldn't see pressing that high up the pitch against them at all given times. And you know, I mean, just to you bring one of my points that I noted down when we started talking about this match is that both of these sides were actually brutally effective in front of goal. Bayern actually had an xG of one, one point zero, and they got three goals from that. So, um, Leipzig had a slightly better one of 1.56 but you know nevertheless that is um, that is some really really great finishing and there, there were some really sweet goals in that match um, yeah speaking speaking of, of, of great goals speaking of great finishing we did have uh, <laughs> a listener topic let's just say mm. uh, from <laughs> friend of the pod uh, Ronan Murphy uh, telling us Thomas Müller that's the topic. Thomas Miller. Thomas Miller. Never, never yeah. doubt. That's the topic. Why, never, why would that be the topic? There's, there's that two, three-year period where, where it was suddenly fashionable to say that Thomas Miller was over the hill and, and not a good footballer for some reason. And it was absurd then, and it's absurd now, and he's showing it. I mean, 
yeah, whether or not he should he should be back in the Germany setup is another question. Um, I kind of veer back and forth on that one, but what a guy! Absolutely, I think when you see Thomas Miller on the pitch, I mean that that sort of the body language alone that he brings to the pitch. And how fired up he is. I mean, he's, he's a guy who's won nine championships on the trot, or eight championships on the trot for Bayern München now, and he's still that geared up and sort of even against Mainz and Augsburg, and he really gives it his all in all matches. I think he's a vital player in that sense, and um, he he still does those things well, um, you know, reading the space, getting into the right positions, and yes, he never looks brilliant on the ball in terms of his technique and such, but... Um, he is really an effective player, and uh, that connection that he struck with Kumon in 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 this particular game, you know, getting on uh, getting on that Kumon cross to to equalize in the end there, absolutely brilliant. Um, great footballing brain, and uh, you know, well, he's he's you know past thirty now, but if he stays fit, you could actually see him go on play for another three, four, five years even. Because uh, you know, I, I think he's got that good a footballing brain. I think he's a is a strange player, uh, as many have pointed out over the years, um, technically and tactically. But that's that's always been his his trump card as well. I think he's one of the few players. If you look at the tactical developments over the, the sort of have happened at the, the top of the game in the last 10, 15 years, there's it's one of the few players that you can imagine playing in in almost all those successful teams, whether it's kind of uh, energetic pressing of, of Klopp's Liverpool or Dortmund or it's the possession game of Guardiola or it's the kind of various variations on those themes that, that have kind of been successful over the last few years. Muller could, if the coach wants him to, find a role in all those systems, which I think is why he's, he's succeeded at Bayern um, consistently over all that time when Bayern have played, you know, at different times in that in the last 10 years um, in different ways and, and under different styles and different coaches. Um, and I think you're right to mention his, his hard work and his commitment, Nick, because I think even even under Kovac, when he was really struggling and people were saying, you know, he's over the hill and, and all the rest of it, even in those games where uh, he was coming on after an hour and he was clearly upset at, at the fact that he didn't have a bigger role, um, when Bayern was struggling, he was quite often the player who would be cajoling his teammates who would really be driving them on and who would who would be talking a lot and and you know it, it's, it's a bit of a cliche and it sounds a bit kind of you know old and conservative to to point stuff like that out but i think it is massively important and i think he's one of those players who who just does it as as part of what he does on the pitch all the time regardless of his situation which is quite rare in the modern game let's uh let's before we um talk about some other things let's talk a little bit about leipzig and um you know the result that they were able to get out of this game you know they took the lead twice in this game they surrendered it each time it definitely felt like a bit of a missed opportunity in in my view i know that uh, in the lead up to this game i thought that um you know bayern were kind of there for the taking obviously it's it's a tricky thing to do especially uh in the allianz arena fans or no fans but i don't know i i, I definitely feel like Especially the way other results played out this weekend. Leipzig are no longer in second. They're now in, in third. The, the two-point gap has been maintained. But I can't help but thinking that that they could have gotten more out of this one. Absolutely, they should have. I mean, as we said last week, with all the injuries and you know players out of form and, and you know the, the Bayern not really having a break since August, uh, if ever, there was 
a buying side for the taking it is this very one i mean they've now conceded the first goal of the match on in the last four match days mm-hmm. yep which is uh which is incredible stuff not so i mean how, how far do we have to go back for that to be the case in bundesliga history i you know i've it's it's mind baffling but um at the end of the day uh Bayern were were the more effective side uh which uh is not really of any comfort to Leipzig but hey that's the way it is but you know i mean i, I you know i mean I, I with Leipzig it's sort of always been a question about how they could replace Werner and how they could do without his pace up front uh, so far so it hasn't come through for them and against the bigger boys of the league, they've they've really sort of struggled uh, in some of those matches. Um, so now it's it's really um, I don't know uh, I don't know how cheerful I should feel about their prospects going forward, even though they aren't third. I think they'll be even more frustrated not to have won if they uh, also get knocked out of the Champions League this week, um, because I feel like they threw it's, it, it was a tough balance uh, to get when you've got two such big games coming up to say, okay, how much do we throw at this first game? How much do we risk um, throwing at this first game and, and potentially harming ourselves, uh, making ourselves more tired for, for the second game? And the fact that they didn't get the result, if if the tiredness does mean that um, they also can't get a result at, um, against United in the midweek, that'll be very frustrating for them. But that said, I I think it's, it's good that they... I think ultimately it's, it's it's psychologically a boost for them to know that they they took the game to Bayern and that they basically deserve to win that game. That's 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 a positive thing, not a negative thing. Um, and I think you're right, Nick. That actually they more so than Dortmund. They've been a team who, if you go there as a smaller club, you expect to get rolled over, and they struggle more in the, the sort of big games against the um, the other top clubs. Um, and that will be the difference for them in terms of properly challenging for the title. And I think getting a 3-3 at the Allianz Arena, even if you could have got more, that's that's a good thing and a good sign. I think for them, it's always always going to be about how they are starting into the new year. Because now in the Bundesliga, they have a home match against Werder Bremen, which should be, uh, you know, they should win that. They have an away match against Hoffenheim, who are currently struggling. And then they finish out the season, see out the season by playing against Köln. But then, at the start of the next year, they start off against Stuttgart, who are in decent form. Then they have a home match against Borussia Dortmund. And then they're on the road to Wolfsburg, which, you know, um, Wolfsburg are, after 10 matches, still undefeated. So if they can get, say, six or nine points out of those three matches, then yes, I, I think they might have, they might make a case for themselves as being viable championship contenders if they get less than six points. They might be out of it by then, especially if Bayern doesn't, you know, slip up too much going forward. All right, let's uh, let's switch gears uh, for a moment and let's take a kind of a more big picture view of RB Leipzig. I spoke with uh, Karin Tejuani, the author of Wings of Change, how the world's biggest energy drinks company made its mark in football a few days ago. And, you know, you can find the whole interview on the Talking Foosball Patreon page. Uh, But here we will join the conversation as I asked him when uh, the RB Brass, you know, that stands for Red Bull in this case, not Rasenballsport, when are they going to start expecting Leipzig to actually challenge for titles, whether that's a Bundesliga title, a Day of Bay-Pokal title, or hmm, a Champions League title? I think they would want success right now, immediately. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Bundesliga or a Champions League, which is still pretty unlikely with Bayern Munich's existence. Um, but 
perhaps a DFB Pokal seems likely. They could have won it last year, but fell short in the final, surprisingly. But didn't expect to lose that badly, but they did. Um, but, you know, with Julian Nagelsmann, um, he is the main project at the whole club. You know, people. if you look at... Normally, it's the, it's the players grabbing all the attention, but in Leipzig, it's Julian Nagelsmann because he's such a big draw. He's been coaching for about five years and he's still only 30, 33 years old or 32 years old. Um, but with Julian Nagelsmann, they want him to be the guy that wins them trophies and they brought him in to be that guy. You know, the first few years in the Bundesliga with Ralf Rangnick and Ralf Hasenhüttl was to sort of stabilise the team and make them settle in the Bundesliga. But now that they're Champions League semi-finalists and they have that tag that's going to stay with them forever, they were Champions League finalists within the first 15 years of their existence. They expect trophies to come by soon. The problem for them is that because of the nature of what they do, they have to sell their best players each year. Um, Naby Keita left in 2018, Timo Werner this year, and maybe Upamecano the next. So there's always a problem for the coaches as well, where they know they won't have their top stars for long. Um, but I think that within the next two or three years, they will feel they need to make changes in order to win one or two trophies just to attract some more players from abroad and maybe attract the best players to their team. Uh, if maybe in the next two or three years they're still trophyless, maybe then we'll see a different change in direction where they say we want to focus on more experienced players, maybe increase the average of the side and you know, perhaps bring that trophy winning experience to the team. But for now, Julian Nagelsmann is the man to bring them a trophy and they want that urgently. Yeah, where do you see, I mean, you mentioned the sort of short timeline that um, Leipzig tends to have with its very best players. And and I, I agree that I, I think Daya Upamecano is probably on his way out in the summer. And that, that could even be true of, a, of another couple of guys, depending on, on how things how things play out. Do you think that they might be on a pretty tight timeline with Julian Nagelsmann as well? Or do you see that as as perhaps being a relationship that could build into a, a more long-term thing as long as the trajectory of the club keeps going up? I, I don't expect him to be here five years from now, um, but I would say within the next three years, I expect him to stay still at Leipzig for, for two reasons primarily. Um, firstly, for his own goals, he feels he's a very objective person. He's always um, talking about how he wants to do stuff with some level of, some amount of natural progression. You know, you can't just he can't just jump from RB Leipzig to a, a Manchester United or Real Madrid because there's a few steps of his development that's missing. But he's always a person who talks like that. And he, he perhaps for his own development, he'd want to stay at Leipzig where the pressure is perhaps less than it would be at another club where he's working with his own ideas. He's allowed to experiment, allowed to make mistakes. So I think he'd want to stay himself for the next two or three years at least. And if even if you are looking from a wider European perspective, there's not really a top-level European club that needs a manager like Julian Nagelsmann. You know, perhaps you could say the Barcelona's or the Real Madrid's. But even then, they would they would look for a person who's who's got more experience and got more trophies to his name. So I think those two factors combine really well for Leipzig because they want Julian Nagelsmann to stay. So, you know, it, it's, it looks good for them for the next two or three years. But beyond that, when Julian Nagelsmann becomes a more household name or perhaps a man with trophies, he'd be wanted by more clubs. Looking ahead at next season and beyond, because we know how this story tends to go, it's it you know there was another chapter of it this past summer when you know Leipzig brought in some players from uh, Salzburg. Are yep. there players who either next season or the season after that would would likely be looking to make that jump? There are a few for sure. I think Karim Adeyemi from Salzburg is the best uh, option to go to Leipzig. Firstly, because he's a German footballer. Secondly, because he's that good. Uh, he scored his goal. He scored his first goal in the Champions League this year at the age of 
18, 19. So he's probably the likeliest to go to Leipzig at some point, if not next year, then the year after for sure. Um, but, you know, you could look at players like Patson Ducker, obviously Leipzig need a forward, you know, Serloth and uh, Huang haven't really gone as planned. You know, but if if it's the same situation in the summer where their forwards aren't scoring goals, I'm sure Patson Ducker would move to Leipzig. It's a very good move for him, as as I said before. You know, these players know the Red Bull way, so they they know how to play and adapt to clubs different, adapt to the, the clubs in the same umbrella easily. But I think those two are the most likeliest because they don't. Leipzig have a, a squad that's stacked enough in most zones. They won't. I don't expect them to sign, sign too many players next year either. But if they were to sign two Salzburg players, it would be Dakar or Adeyemi. Let me take a step back and ask a little bit about some of the sort of underpinnings of uh, Leipzig's success. And, you know, looked at in, in a sort of a long view in that they didn't really start investing in that club until not much more than 10 years ago. And now <laughs> they made it to a Champions League semifinal. Like, yeah. yes, the story is uh, about, you know, financial support, but it's also about a lot more than that. What do you see as sort of the, the the primary advantage or edge that they have on a lot of the sort of traditional clubs in terms of, um, you know, either either practices on the pitch, off the pitch, you know, facilities? Like, where do they really stand out for you? Well, it's the money, isn't it? I mean, that's the easiest way to put it, that the money they have is uncomparable to other clubs in Germany. When you look at their rise from the fifth division to the first division, they spent about 50, 60 million odd euros, which is money that other clubs just can't even dream of because they don't, they don't they're probably never, never going to get to that level and you know while i say that there's also a massive um footballing difference you know ralph Rannick was the biggest influence in that regard if you look at the first few years of rb leipzig from 2009 to 2013 14 people often think it was an easy rise for them because they had so much money but it wasn't an easy rise because they had they didn't have the right football people you know dietrich mantashitz was often sacking uh sporting directors at will um, there, were, there was structural problems at the club as well for the first two or three years. It wasn't until Ralf Rangnick arrived that both Salzburg and Leipzig were benefited where because Ralf Rangnick bought his his style of football and his, his staff to the club, you know, the, the version of Leipzig we see right now, the entertaining, fast-paced, high-pressing, high high-attacking football, that was all brought in by, by Ralf Rangnick and he even brought in the youth philosophy where they choose to focus on players who are under 23 or 24 years old. So, I think that if you have a mind that's as great as Ralph Rangnick, you are going to do good things. And it's not a surprise to see them uh, succeeding at clubs. You know, we've seen clubs like Schalke rumored with Ralph Rangnick and they could do with him right now because of how much they're struggling, but they can't afford him. So Leipzig were heavily benefited by the amount of money they have and getting the perfect person in Ralph Rangnick. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought up uh, Ralph Rangnick because he's, he's actually, uh, that's where I want to go next. Um you know, he worked in the Red Bull system for eight years. Yep. And those were eight years of almost, you know, unbridled success. I mean, certainly for certainly for Salzburg, who, you know, really stand astride their league, but he, even for Leipzig coming coming as far as they did in that period of time. But that's over now. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know whether this is uh, just down to the kind of natural fatigue that sets in for anybody who works on a project for a really long time and, and invests himself in it, or whether there might actually be, you know, any kind of schisms within in the Red Bull. But they're entering some new territory now. The person who basically molded their uh, tactical outlook and their sort of administrative um, structures is gone. Yeah. Where does that leave 
Red Bull football. Are there people in place to sort of take them on into the future in in secure hands? Or or is there potentially a couple of years of transition uh, coming up? I think he's left in very good hands. He left at the perfect time as well. You know, he himself said that he he achieved everything he wanted to with Red Bull and all their clubs. And he left all four clubs in very good hands. Uh, Obviously, at at Leipzig, they have Marcus Kroescher, the sporting director who's working with Julian Nagelsmann. In, in Salzburg, they have Christoph Freund, who's been there for, he's been in Salzburg since they began in 2005. He's been promoted role after role after role, and now he's the main man. At um, New York, obviously, he won Kevin Telval over the year, over the over the winter. And um, at in Brazil, they have Thiago Scuro. So they have the right people that he's left behind. And even last year, when he left his role with Leipzig and moved to Red Bull's, Red Bull Global, where he was the head of international soccer, he... That was done with the intention of leaving the club with people who knew how to take them forward and ensure that his absence would not be felt. Um, so I don't think they'll struggle necessarily because they now they've been doing it for years now, and Dietrich Manchester knows what it takes to to um, have a perfect model. So he's left behind some very good, experienced people who know what they're doing and who've been successful in the past as well. So they won't. I don't, I don't expect any glitches to be there because he, firstly, his influence over the last his influence over the last one year reduced. Where he was looking at more the Europe, more the non-European clubs, and um, secondly, because as I said before, that the club, the all clubs were left in good hands. So I, I don't really expect any glitches or any struggles for the next couple of years. All right, Karan Tejwani, the author of Wings of Change, How the World's Biggest Energy Drinks Company Made Its Mark in Football There. You can get that book uh, at your your favorite bookshop or or whatever online source you like to buy books. Do head over to patreon.com slash talkingfoosball to sign up as a patron. Get that interview in its entirety as well as much, much more. All right, here comes part two of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. This is, uh, you know, match day 10, as we all know. Um, We're going to start with a pretty interesting match in terms of storylines. This was a weird match in that it really looked like it was just going to be a a 1-0 away win for Stuttgart. They were just going to sort of take this one home. And then some things in the last, like, three or four minutes got a little bit funky. Nick, do you want to quickly... Tell people what happened in, in the waning minutes. Well, there's basically a back pass to Omar Toprak, who then just tries to chest it down to Pavlenka to, you know, get Bremen up upfield again because Bremen was chasing a 1-0 deficit. And um, what happens is that Vamagutuka uh, gets in there with his immense burst of speed, gets to the ball before Pavlenka, uh, goes towards the goal, is suddenly in acres of space in, in front of goal, Plenty of time on his hands, and he just waits and waits and waits and waits and waits some more. And finally, Pavlenka decides to come rushing back, and that's the point when he just decides to put the ball into the net. Fair enough. Yeah, but let, let's just move on then. What? Why are we? Why are we not just moving on here? <laughs> I mean, he was. <laughs> well, Davy Selke um, took it upon himself to run all the way from you know the top of the pitch down to Vamgatuka to you know, tell him a thing or two about what he thought about that. In the aftermath of the match, he actually went a bit out out of his way to complain about the sort of course of action Vamagutuka had taken to the press, saying that this was unsporting, it didn't belong on a football pitch, and, uh, you know, a lot of hot air. Um, 
I think Wamagatuka was even booked. Yeah, both both Zelka and Zelas uh, Wamagatuka were were given yellow cards in there. I'm not quite sure why Wamagatuka was booked though, because Zelka is the one who has made the conscious decision of making an 80 yard run to confront the other player, who just stands there and has his arms up in the air, really not doing anything. So. It cannot be for an argument between two players. No, he was booked for, for unsportsmanlike conduct, which I agree is utterly absurd. If it's unsportsmanlike conduct to, to walk the ball into the goal, then that's football has just totally lost its moral compass, which we, we were aware that it had. But it was, <laughs> the, what, what upset me the most about it, sorry for, to sort of bring in, but what upset me the most about it is that there was this sort of bizarre side discussion where Matarazzo, the Stuttgart coach, trying to justify it by saying, oh, he was just trying to trying to run down the clock by walking the ball, as if that would make it better. That's unsportsmanlike conduct, right? It, it's fine to, to take your time to walk into the goal. It's not fine to try and run down the clock. That It's not fine to hack someone down in the middle of the park when they're, when they're about to launch a counterattack. And yet, weirdly, our moral compass now says it would be fine if he was doing it in order to help his team. But... Uh, you know, cynically and 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 completely against the spirit of the game, that would be okay. But because because it's slightly, you know, you know, slightly mocking the other team, that's disgraceful. And and he must be, you know, publicly shamed for it. It's absurd. It's football taking itself too seriously again. Yeah, I mean, I I I too, and basically <laughs> cutting to the chase. Uh, we had two two listener questions about this from William in Chicago and uh, at Brinyhoof in uh, Banbury. Was the Wamanga Tuka yellow justified? I think we have a unanimous decision here on the podcast that's a no. But one thing you just said about him, you know, about wasting time being unsportsmanlike. I mean, how how would you know if he was if he was indeed wasting time or trying to run down the clock? How is that any different than than you know taking the ball into the corner uh, on on an on an attack? I mean, I don't like that particularly, no, but I don't see it as unsportsmanlike. No, I mean, it, it, I don't like it either. I do see it as unsportsmanlike, um, but I don't think that's why he got the yellow card, is my point. I don't think he would have got a yellow card for doing that, um, but I think it was bizarre. That so it must have been the argument between him and Salka, which was pretty much... I think which, the idea was that he was, because he was mocking the other team by not just getting on with the game, and that they he considered that unsportsmanlike, right? And that, that I, I find, is, is a very bizarre logic, and it's even more bizarre when defending him from that supposed crime his coach says well he was just trying to run down the clock which is a naturally annoying thing to do it, it, it's just it just shows how utterly weird football is now yeah i don't i don't know i i mean i don't i don't get the yellow card i mean if it's mocking the other team to just wait and wait and wait well yeah fine it's sort of a bit bit dickish but i don't see anything wrong with it <laughs> to be honest, if Bremen are that shit in defense that they give you 25 minutes to finish off a move in front of an empty goal, take your time. But I mean, there's I, I think there's more to be said about Davy Selke, who goes off in the media after that, and who, you know, I sort of maybe slightly understand that notion to you know, that action, the, the course of action he took in the heat of the moment, just sprinting across the entire pitch to, to shout him down. But, you know, in the aftermath... He should concentrate on other stuff. Um, I mean, what Davy Selke would be well to do is to concentrate on scoring goals that actually do matter. Uh, other than, you know, those two goals he scored, he scored in defeats, which means that they're not, they haven't really helped Werder Bremen at all so far. Yeah, he had a habit of scoring garbage time goals for Hertha yeah, as I mean, well. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, he was brought on when the 
game was still still at 1-0 for Stuttgart and he didn't produce anything of note before he got that garbage time goal. Why don't you start doing something about that? Because whenever he's brought on, he really doesn't produce or add anything to Werder's game so far this season. I mean, that, that for me is a bigger problem than Vamadi Gutuka um, trying to just run down the clock. To be fair on Davy Selke, I, 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 he said in the interview on Sky, I watched it, he said, well, you know, I think it was disrespectful. We don't need to talk about it uh, for too long, too long. It was obviously disrespectful, but he's had a good game and uh, he sees the error of his ways. So let's get on with it. That's, that was the tenor of Davy Selke's interview. So he didn't, he didn't really kind of make a massive deal out of it afterwards. Oh, he, he did. Just said, well, he did, though, in print media, didn't he? I mean, there were several several quotes in Kicker where it was just um, line after line after line about this not being wrong. And there was actually Sven Mislintard coming out in Kicker as well, defending Vamagituka and actually reminding everybody that Karl-Heinz Rummenigge actually scored a similar goal in, in the 80s. Only that one was actually disrespectful. I went and looked it up. Because he juggled, he, he juggled the ball in front of goal, <laughs> waiting, waiting, and then headed the ball over the line. Well, yeah, he actually even... pulled the ball back to prevent it from going over the line. Yeah. And then flipped it up so he could head it into the goal. That was he, he actually... He nearly, nearly shanked it past the post by accident at one point. <laughs> if you watch the clip carefully enough, it is, it's pretty funny. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the goal of the month in Germany back then. (laughs) Yeah, wow. But, no, I mean, mean, to move on from that controversy, which I don't think is a controversy at all, and really just a bit silly bugger talking about this. Um, uh, As for the game, deserved win for Stuttgart. They were the more effective side of the two, um, produced had more half chances than Bremen. They had two big chances, took them both. Penalty that was given away by Tai Chong, that was converted by... uh, Valmangituka and then that chance that they got in the dying minutes. Brem didn't produce anything of note. Once they got behind, they had one good chance at the start of the match. So it's, it's a deserved, deserved win for Stuttgart. And uh, Stuttgart are looking better and better for each week that goes by. And uh, I think I think Stuttgart actually still undefeated on the road, which is uh, quite a quite a nice stat for for a newly promoted side. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I've got a lot of time. I've got a lot of time for Stuttgart. Uh, we got some more matches to talk about. Uh, not only, uh, but but including uh, Bielefeld versus Mainz, which was America's favorite match on uh, Saturday morning. Woo-hoo! You know, quick question from uh, Aditya in South Carolina, who simply asks: uh, Do Bielefeld have a realistic chance to stay in the Bundesliga? Uh, they did get a 2-1 win in this game. That got them out of the uh, automatic relegation places. They now have a, a two-point edge over Mites in 17th place. Um, and also, how good is Ritsu Doan, who, who scored the, uh, the the second goal in this one? What 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 do you make of, of Bielefeld, Kit? Yeah, well, I was very pleased, um, obviously, as a um, Onion fan, I was very pleased to see uh, Uwe Neuhaus get his get a, an important win um, and I think one that is probably overdue because watching them on and off this season I think they've they've been better than their their results would necessarily suggest um, I think they've been brave against teams like Bayern even um, in ways that their results wouldn't necessarily suggest and I agree Richard Johan is a very very uh, exciting looking player so I think I think they have the potential to to stay up and to and to avoid it, I think they'll need a couple of other clubs like Mainz, like Schalke, to to stay on the poor form that they're on now um, and not have a revival later on in the season. And I fear that they might 
be, albeit on a slightly higher level, a similar story to Paderborn last season, which is a team, you know, trying to play expansive football to stay in the league and, and paying the price for it and going down. But yeah, I, I hope they stay up because I think they're a, an interesting team with a good coach and it's not impossible. Nick, any anything to add about that or about indeed uh, Mites and, and the fact that, you know, they really actually played at least as well as, as Bielefeld in this game and could have gotten at least a point out of this, but but didn't. Yeah, I mean, Robin Quaison in particular, who had that big chance in the dying moments of the match, must feel sick to his stomach today. Because, yeah, Mainz should definitely have taken a point in terms of the, the balance of the game. But yeah, for, for Bielefeld, it was the sort of win they needed after seventh straight losses. They need to grind out results, and that's what the team is capable of at best. And yeah, as Kid said, um, Köln, Schalke, Mainz, they need to stay shit in order for Bielefeld to have a realistic chance of surviving. And uh, yeah, Doan was was brilliant, involved in both goals, by the way. Good player. Yeah, I'm not convinced, um, just to get back to Aditya's question, I'm not convinced that Bielefeld is significantly worse than, than you know, Mike Schalke or Cologne. I think that they're definitely uh, in with a shout to stay in the league, uh, not just through the relegation playoff. I think that the bigger upsides to, both, to those other three teams, if they should get their act together sure yeah <laughs> they have a little bit of money as opposed to no money at all but that is that that is in, in terms of in terms of Schalke that is a big if in terms of Mines and Köln that, that is slightly smaller ifs but yeah those are still unanswered questions and they're going to follow us through throughout the yep. course of the season alright um, another team who is sort of uh, flirting with the relegation battle uh, is uh, SC Freiburg this is a team that I think uh, a lot of neutrals uh, like to see do well not only because of, of you know the sort of you know little little club that could narrative but uh, some of the, the personalities uh, attached to that club I you know I don't need to go into it too far but you know it would be a bummer for a lot of people if that team uh, were to go down. This was a funny one. I, I guess I brought it up a little earlier in the show that they had a lot of good chances in this game and did not uh, do a lot with them. It was a 2-2 draw in the end against a Borussia Mönchengladbach. Gladbach, of course, are, are a team that have uh, a lot going on right now, like, like a lot of uh, teams playing in Europe. What did you make of this one, Nick? Did it just more or less seem like this was the game that that kind of caught <laughs> caught Gladbach in the middle of something else? Yeah, Gladbach seemed to be on sort of that trajectory where they are <laughs> seeming ever uh, so slightly overworked at the moment. And um, yeah, Freiburg really unlucky not to get a win here because uh, you know if you just take a closer look at the two goals by Gladbach, the first one I think it's you could chalk it down as half a goalkeeping mistake. I mean, that shot by um, um, Brel and Bolo, comes, it comes quickly. It is, it's a hard shot, but it's not, it's not impossible to keep out for Florian Müller. It goes... He got his angle wrong. Yeah, it goes, it's, it's basically just inches away from him. So that in itself is, is an unlucky goal to concede. And then there's a long range effort from player to uh, get that second goal for Gladbach. Um, and Freiburg being wasteful in front of goal, as we said earlier, XG of four goals and they only got two. So, um, yeah, uh, as for Freiburg, um, they're actually facing Bielefeld next weekend. That should get a lot of viewership of, uh, you know, people in South Carolina and Texas and, uh, you know, now that everybody in the States loves Bielefeld. <laughs> is, is this just a cunning plan by, uh, you know, Armenia Bielefeld to, to, to raise their profile? 
just you wait for that summer tour of Arminia Bielefeld through the States and, uh, you know, you see like, you know, back in, you know, back in the, back in the seventies when the Cosmos arrived and you had 120,000 spectators in New York to watch Pelé and Franz Beckenbauer, you'll get the same with Bielefeld when they come around with Constantine Pieper and Ortega and all these starlets. Hey man, Ritsu Doan, I'll show up to watch that guy anytime. Okay, let's let's move on and talk about Cologne and Wolfsburg. Uh, you know, Cologne definitely in this relegation mix as well. I believe they're now level on points with Bielefeld. They got a 2-2 draw versus Wolfsburg. Uh, lots of teams get 2-2, 1-1, draws with Wolfsburg. We had a listener question from Justin in Chicago. Um, you know, I think... If he is uh, someone who follows Wolfsburg, just as Brian uh, from earlier in the show as a follower of Frankfurt, probably starting to lose his patience a little bit with this uh, draw after draw uh, situation. He asked simply, can, can Wolfsburg, do they have it in them to make the Champions League? Um, Kit, why don't you hit that? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, in theory, yes, but I... I I just think, I mean, you've mentioned the, the amount they draw. I think there's, you look at the squad, I think you look at also, most importantly, the strength of, of the teams above them. Um, and I don't really see any any club over the course of a season getting inside that top five um, of Bayern, Leipzig, Dortmund, Gladbach and, and Leverkusen. Um, I'd be very surprised if, if any of those five land outside the top five. Um, because I think the yeah, the quality and the consistency of those teams is, is significantly higher than than the Frankfurts and, and Wolfsburgs and and potentially even the sort of smaller upstarts that, that might knock around that that area. Um, and again, I think you know that's to to go back to my broken record argument about you know this being a a worrying long term trend. I think that gap is as worrying as the one between Bayern and and their immediate challenges um, because it's a it's a kind of it's a fossilization of, of the, the power relationships in the Bundesliga and it's, it's yeah, going to make it more boring. And yeah, I'd like to see, a, uh, um, I don't really have any sympathies towards the Facebook, but I'd like to see them, you know, get back into the, the top five and mix it up a bit in the same way. I'd like to see any club do it, Frankfurt or Hoffenheim or whoever, but I, I, just, I mean, it's, it's unlikely. In terms of the money they have at hand though, over there in Wolfsburg, I mean, there, there's been a lot of, writing and, and talking on, on you know Doppelpass and such that you know Wolfsburg are not spending as they used to do but I actually looked at uh, the numbers in terms of what wages they use and what transfer sums they spent over at Wolfsburg and they are actually one of the biggest spenders in the league as of now I mean over the last four years uh, they've actually the team paying out the fourth highest wages in the Bundesliga which means that they've been massively underperforming I think Gladbach pay on average 500,000 euros or pounds per player, less per player than Wolfsburg do. I don't know if there's a model for that in the Bundesliga, but in the Premier League there is. And there's that statement made by, by Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski in Soconomics that 90%, 92% of all results can be explained by how much wages the team is paying out. And, you know, if that logic holds to be true, Wolfsburg have been massively underperforming over the last four or five years, massively so. I mean, they they were actually twice in the uh, promotion in the in the relegation playoff during that time. 
So um, in terms of the resources they have, they should be challenging or be there or thereabout for Champions League spot. But I, I think this is about a question of long-term goals. And I think the, the debate you mentioned earlier about Wolfsburg, the, you know, the, there's been a double person in the, in the print media about Wolfsburg spending less than they did before is important here because if you're at Wolfsburg, you know that any success you have is dependent on what money Volkswagen want to put into the club. And history says that that amount of money goes up and down every few years. Now, that means you cannot build uh, a long-term project to establish yourself in the Champions League and stay there. Because if Volkswagen, for whatever reason, maybe they you know have another crisis because they cheated on their emissions tests again, decide to turn off the money, um, then suddenly that project is is out the window, right? So... In 15, they were in the Champions League. Volkswagen suddenly stopped or, or said long-term they are not going to invest that cash because they hit the biggest crisis in their, in their company's history. Volkswagen then had to jettison lots of high-quality players, um, which the, the wage bill is clearly uh, not just going to go from big to small like that, but it's, you're going to lose quality players. You're going to still have a high wage bill. You're going to be fighting relegation as they did. And probably the, the money you just quoted over the last four years is more a reflection of that. And that, to me, confirms my argument that this is not a club which long-term is looking to establish itself in the Champions League and therefore not a club that will. Gladbach, on the other hand, even if they pay less, are saying we want to be in that top five and they're doing that with well, the younger well, players. Well, their wages have that. actually gone up over the last four years, was my point. They haven't gone down despite, you know, the talk about, you know, Wolfsburg saying, okay, we cannot spend X amount of money on our, our football team. As, a, as, a, as a, an actual figure? or As an actual figure, yeah. I've looked at the numbers, and the actual figures says that in in sixteen seventeen, uh, Wolfsburg were uh, spending one point seven oh seven million pounds per player, uh, and in nineteen twenty, they were actually spending close to two million per player pounds. That is, I, I agree, it shows they're underperforming. But I also think it's a it's a knock on effect from the fact that they uh, that the sporting trajectory they've had over the last few years has been so up and down that they're they're throwing money throwing money after bad as it were um and they when they stabilize they'll want to stabilize in the europa league and that's why they're they're happy where they are now i think because uh, that's that's kind of the happy medium that, that they want to hit and if they get into the champions league one year or win the Bacal, then that's that's great for them but yeah i mean i have a, i have a different theory altogether and and that, that is the fact that wolfsburg is such a boring place and there's that famous story of of the former hamburg player ivan Askis who was set to sign for, for Wolfsburg and he sent his wife to, to take a look at the town. And she said, not all of the money in the world is going to make me move there. And I think that Wolfsburg are actually paying sort of a premium for, you know, average players to get them to move to Wolfsburg, given what sort of city it is. I mean, that is sort of like maybe a bit out there, but I mean, it might be the case in some cases that Wolfsburg actually have to play, paint pay a little bit extra because it's not the most attractive of clubs to play for, is it? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's move on to uh, a couple of clubs who uh, also often have players living not in the, the confines of the city. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen, uh, many players <laughs> live in Cologne. Schalke Nullfier, many of their players live in Dusseldorf. Um, they played each other on the weekend. It was a pretty definitive 3-0 win for Bayer Leverkusen. They were the big winners from the match day as far as uh, title candidates go. They are now in 
second place uh, behind Bayern. They they leapfrogged a couple of teams to get there. Um, Schalke, meanwhile, they are now, what, uh, 26 games and counting without a win. Um, we got a couple of listener questions about this one. I, I think we can probably answer them both um, you know, and, and, and they, that should foster a decent discussion. Um, first from, from uh, Evan in Montreal and Dan in Colorado. Is Leverkusen a real contender for the title? No. Well, I, I just think this season is has the potential oh, to... Oh, wow. You, you, you're going to throw I like the surprises, And I can give, see it give, being... Give me, give me more, Kit. Well, it's more likely than any year in a long time to be a kind of more than two-horse race going into sort of March time. And I think if they're still there, then all bets are off. Yep, that would be a, a pretty inspiring story, uh, considering, you know, how many times the spotlight has been on Leverkusen uh, as title challengers and how many times they have not done anything with it. And then for them to emerge this year as potentially surprise title challengers, if, if they were to do it, I, I, I wouldn't mind it. Uh, we had a listener question from uh, Andy in Bulgaria. Uh, he asks, is there anything else that could go wrong for Schalke? I mean, if the the snake farm next to the uh, Faltins Arena suddenly has sort of wait the uh, snake the snake break. farm <laughs> I don't know I mean maybe that's I mean, been the problem the whole time what else could there I'm I'm struggling hard to think what else could go wrong for for Schalke um, Matt Herman were to break into their stadium and do a poo in their center circle that would be worse than their current <laughs> current scenario just putting it out just there. Um, uh, among the things Schalke um. Well, listen. Um, you know, I, I, I looked at I looked at the, at the numbers for Schalke, and none of them look good. Uh, if you take a sort of a really long term perspective, um, I, th- I think there hasn't been a coach since Mirko Slomko who's managed to stay more than two years at Schalke, and that in itself tells you something about the culture at the club. Um, now they've had another coaching change, which has yielded three draws and five defeats. So that sort of didn't have any sort of effect. And now there's even talk and writing about the fact that uh, the players don't like having Naldo there. The players, they don't like um, Manuel Baum sort of uh, being being a teacher and being very sort of, they feel that he's condescending. So his sort of South German swagger is not really gelling well with, with these West Germans from, from the Ruhrpott. I, I, you know, the only sort of, blessing in disguise I can see for Schalke is that they've had a very tough schedule until this point and the next seven opponents are actually uh, coming from uh, from the bottom ten of the table I mean the, the highest placed team they're playing is actually uh, Frankfurt who are ninth all the other teams in the next seven matches are below that and um, you know if, if you cannot salvage something from those seven matches and not get anywhere you know near the sort of 16th, 15th, 14th place on the table with those seven opponents coming up. Yeah, I, I don't see any any way of, you know, getting getting out of that sort of situation they're in because, I mean, what good would it do if they fire another coach? Because 
I mean, right now, there seems to be so many problems within the dressing room. We discussed those last week. There seems to be so many problems internally in the club. Now there's even talk about Johan Schneider maybe being on his way out. I mean, it's sort of this really, really big mess financially in terms of the leadership at the club, in terms of the dressing room culture. Get any rays of sunshine. Get nothing, 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 nothing is going right for Schalke at the moment. You haven't yet broken into the stadium and unloaded your bowels in the center circle. <laughs> That's true. I didn't do it on the center circle. I got them to move the uh, the turf. You know, the turf is on, there's those little planner. It's on wheels. It goes outside to, to, to get sunlight. I actually had them roll the pitch out next to the stadium before I did the poo on, on the concrete. And the snakes so. are still inside. So <laughs> It's <was> amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's good news all around. All right. Uh, if there is, uh, you know, there, there is one match that we haven't talked about at all. That's because it's still happening. Uh, it's Hoffenheim versus Augsburg. Uh, there's no point in us telling uh, what the score is because the score may change in the next uh, little bit. It, it's a game. It's going to happen. You're going to find out what happens uh, at the same time we do. Actually, I've been I've been watching. Oh my lord. And, um, <laughs> If any- is that why you've been talking so much nonsense? <laughs> yes. Uh, if anything, uh, watch, uh, look out for Florian Grilich's second goal. Absolute beaut. Uh, right now the score is 3-1, but as you said, yeah, game is, uh, is going back and forth and it uh, might very well change. But right now Hoffenheim are leading 3-1 with 35 minutes to go. Okay, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced as always by Aiden Rantoul. Good to get back at it with you, Nick. Great to be back. And uh, Kit, I just I just remembered from, uh, you know, you started actually out on the, the talking, uh, not, not the talking, but the Bundesliga Fanatic podcast. Back then you were a Bayern fan, weren't you? I was, I still am, yeah, yeah, but secretly. Yeah. Secretly, so so you sort of like, are, are you missing that public persona of being a Bayern fan? You know, your your hatred is our pride and all that, and in in the in the light of Union's defeat this week. No, I'm I, I'm happy to switch between the two clubs as it as it suits me. You know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a nice little it's a nice little niche I've got going. I can be a, a glory supporter if I want to be, and a and a kind of stick up for the little man when I need to do that. So yeah, it's it's good to have many many. Strings to your bow. <laughs> all things to all people, uh, Kit Holden. Uh, you can just describe Nick as that way as well. You can find him uh, on Twitter at Normusings. You can hear plenty more of him on our Patreon page. Uh, Kit, he's on Twitter as well, at Kit Holden. You can read his work on Der Tagesspiegel in German and in English as well for AFP. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman over there on Twitter. You can also hit us up collectively at Talking Foosball. Please, please subscribe to the pod wherever you get your pods tell your friends about us especially if they are Bundesliga heads bis zum nächsten Mal y'all